Thanks for downloading and listening to a Quick Timeout podcast presented by Dr. Dish Basketball. If you're in the market for a shooting machine, look no further than Dr. Dish Basketball's incredible lineup of shooting machines. Their CT, All-Star Plus, and Rebel Plus models have been bought by thousands of programs around the world, while their home model is being used by players all over the country, right in their own backyards and driveways. New to the lineup this year is the Dr. Dish facility model for those with basketball training businesses. These machines are must-have for those looking to take their shooting to the next level. To find out more, visit drdishbasketball.com. want to welcome to the podcast, Grapevine Faith Christian School head basketball coach and author of the book, The Leftovers, Basketball, Betrayal, Baylor, and Beyond, Matt Saman. Coach, thanks for jumping on the podcast. Man, thanks so much for having me. If the name sounds familiar, and I guess as he talks now, the voice, if the voice sounds familiar, <laughs> it's because just a few weeks ago, I posted on this podcast an interview that I did on his podcast the Jamodi podcast, and I'll be sure to link that down below. Not because I was great on it or anything, but he asked some really great questions. So I enjoyed talking with with him a little, little bit about everything. Talked a little offense, practice planning, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I'm keeping him a little bit more on on a task so that I won't ramble like I did the last time I talked to him. But if they're unfamiliar by chance, coach, of – the story as you start to describe it, they will mm. most that are probably within our demographics. Will, oh yeah, that's right. But can you share with them kind of your story there at Baylor and kind of what led you to writing the book? Okay. Yeah. Real quick about what it's, you know, what the book is, is about is and you're right on the money. I think people our age will remember back to not maybe the specifics of what happened with Baylor basketball in 2003, but once you start to talk about it, they'll connect some dots. And that's happened to me pretty much over the last 20 years is when I say I played basketball at Baylor, people ask, oh, when were you there? I'll say 2000, 2004. And a lot of people will just, well, did it? Were you there when that happened? And I'll, yes, yes, I was. And, <laughs> and for a long time, I dodged that question. Like I didn't even really want it to come up uh, until the process of putting the story together. So for people that don't know, Going into my senior year in 2003, that summer, one of my teammates shot and killed one of my other teammates. Uh, Because of that, they started to look into our program deeply. And the coach that I played three years, almost 100 games for, found out that him and the staff were doing a lot of things wrong right in in front of me. And I I didn't know, and I felt a little foolish from that. And over the course of that, that two months of that summer, we lost 10 teammates. And I went into my senior year, which we were supposed to be really good. That's like another layer to it. It's not like, oh, no big deal. You weren't mm-hmm. going to be good and you weren't good anyway. We were supposed to be a top 25 team, make the NCAA tournament, be fourth in the Big 12 or top four in the Big 12, which was a dream that I had had with the coach that ended up leaving. I mean, he recruited me saying, you're going to be a pillar in our basketball program. Like what kid doesn't want to hear that? Mm-hmm. And, and then – lost 10 teammates. So going into my senior year, we have six scholarship players to play a full division one, big 12 and the big 12 at that point, every program had NBA players and future hall of fame coaches. It was incredible. And, and then a 32 year old Scott drew gets hired. And, and it's the, it's the idea of we were left over from everything that had happened 
but a lot of people see the success really the last decade or even 15 years that Baylor basketball's had leading up to the championship two years ago, but they don't know what they don't know is what it was like when there was only six of us and we were role players and what that was like. And, and so you kind of ask what the process was like writing it. Um, and if I'm ever rambling too much, you let me know. Uh, but I was a varsity assistant, probably my third or fourth year into it in the mid two thousands. Um, it was probably four or five years after leaving Baylor. And I was reading a book called The Walk-On, Life at the End of the Bench by Alan Williams. And I think he later on changed the title to Teammates Matter. And because one time in, in our teacher's workroom, in our little cubby holes, I looked, we all had books. I pulled it out and it's teammate Matt, Teammates Matter. And I'm looking through, I was like, I've read this. Like, this is The Walk-On. So really good idea there, you know, repurpose your, your book in another way. But, but it was really cool reading his story. It's like, he was a walk-on, I think at Wake Forest or Georgia Tech, one of those two. And, but it was my story. Like, here's a guy, six, two and a half, six, three, grinding to stay on the team every year. And I was just living out what he went through going, yeah, I get that. And so I started to think, okay, do I have a unique playing story? And there are some parts to it. Growing up in Pennsylvania, moving down to Texas for basketball, being average athletically, but wanting, having these huge dreams as a young kid, those dreams actually happening. And then I get all the way through that because I wanted it to be a really good basketball book. Like if somebody wanted to know what does it feel like to be a blue collar role player in a high level division one locker room, I wanted to take them inside there and see it. But then I got to that summer and I had, I was blown away, even going back through, did this really happen? All of these details. And what, what really happened, Coach, was it, it, I was living, even still at that point, in a way of, of frustration and anger, resentment, because of something that had happened to me as a 21-year-old. And it forced me to deal with that. And so how I look back at my experience now is way different than before I wrote the book. Hmm. I'm going to ask you more about those lessons sure. that you kind of reflected on in just a few moments, but I had coach drew on earlier this year and talked about the book and just to read kind of the behind the scenes from the staff's perspective, you know, he had stuff from you in there. I know you were quoted in the book several times, but from like a player's perspective, what was it about coach drew and his staff that gave you guys like any hope or even any motivation for playing that season. I know it wasn't a great season, but it was. It also wasn't like you guys were like over, and it was kind of like yeah. get the season over with. From the perspective of the whole book, that year was kind of foundational for like the rest of what was going to happen, albeit somewhat slow, like 15 years. But like that was still an important year for him and then for the program itself. So like Jim Nance said, at the at the buzzer of their championship run he says scott drew and baylor complete the greatest turnaround or rebuild in sports history uh, i would also add one of the quickest because even though you said 15 years to be at rock bottom i mean smu is an example of what the death penalty in a program looks like and some might say they still haven't recovered and that was in the early 90s 
So for us to have six players be eight and 21, when I tell people we were eight and 21, I also echo that it was, it was the most successful team I've ever been a part of. The reason for that is what Coach Drew helped us to do is redefine what success is. You know, so often in, in coaching and our culture, success is how far did you get? How many wins did you have? What glory did you bring home? Well, eight and 21, not a lot to write about there, but it was the way that we competed, the fact that we kept showing up. Um, and Coach Drew, really, that word hope, it's funny how you said you used that. Like that, that's what I would say. His, his relentless joy and his hope in what we were building for the future, I think it really just wore us down because I'll just speak for myself because Terrence Thomas, uh, one of the other leftovers and one of our three seniors, one of our, we were all captains that year. There was only three of us and out of the six. So I had a, I had a pretty good uh, odds of being a captain my senior year <laughs> with six players. And, and, you know, so the three of us were, but Terrence is really the hero of the story because we kind of flip-flop roles. Um, my junior year, I was living in heaven. My, my version of heaven at that point of 21-year-old's dream. And, and he was down in the dumps, hating where he was. Well, all this stuff happens. He embraces Coach Drew and Coach Drew's vision and is this beacon of hope. And here I'm frustrated, miserable, not understanding why this has happened. And I was very resistant to Coach Drew. Uh, I would actually say, sadly through a majority of that year because I was a pleaser and I was learning at that age, especially with the media and, and the, what the, the role I had to take on with them. Um, I was learning to fake it really well. And so with him, I did my best and I was the leader that they needed or thought that, that I was, even though in my opinion, I left a lot off the table and as far as leadership goes and being authentic. But, uh, yeah, it's been really fun over the years um, to listen to Baylor fans and people that watched us play refer to us as that foundational piece. Because think about this. I mean, five years after 8-21, and 21, weren't supposed to win any Big 12 games. We won three, and we were competitive in a bunch of them. Like, could have won if we didn't get worn out because I was playing 38 minutes a, a game. and I'm not built for that. I'm built for 20. And, and five years later, they make the NCAA tournament. Like it took five years for them to go from nothing to getting the ultimate goal, which is making it there. Like to me, that's incredible. The best basketball coaches are relying on data more than ever. That's why coaches love huddle assist with assist. You can get full game breakdowns, including complete team and player stats in less than 24 hours. Your stats are ready when you need them. And assist is more than just the box score. Use interactive reports like shot charts and advanced stats like lineup data, VPS, and of course, effective field goal shooting percentage to coach smarter. Plus, assist brings your stats to life. Combined with HD quality, automatically captured film from the Huddle Focus smart camera, every stat is marked on the video at the moment it happened. See every shot, turnover, rebound, and much more with just a few clicks. Want to see how Huddle Assist is elevating basketball? Visit huddle.com slash visit huddle.com slash assist. That's huddle.com slash assist to learn more. So you're a coach now, and while you know, I believe you haven't faced anything close to that since Not then. Not like that. 
but like challenges are inevitable for all of us. And with the experience that you have now and kind of hindsight being 2020, how have the things that you learned from that helped you in dealing with challenges that you face now? And I think that this mm -hmm. can be helpful for any coach because the challenges are always inevitable. And I do think that when you face something that big, then it kind of maybe even puts smaller stuff like a losing streak or something like that yep. in a little bit more perspective. That's the word like right there. You nailed it. I, I at this point, like I, I could easily go into my faith and, and the yeah. role that that plays in all of this. But even if, if for those coaches that, you know, it's, it's not, that's not the path that they're on. You want to think about what's most important in your life. And as a 21 year old, this faith that I thought I had was challenged. And I realized that you rip open my chest and there's no, there's not really a set of values. There is a game. The a basketball is there. Well, if that game lets you down in any way, and in my, my experience really is ripped apart and floors you, what do you, what, what's your foundation? Like, what do you have left to stand on? Who are you at that point? I realized that 21 without basketball, I, I'm nothing. Like, I don't know who I am. And so I ran to some things that I never dreamt that I would run to. And it carried, it followed me for nine years. I think now as a coach perspective, keeping the main thing, the main thing, remembering that my value as a person isn't wrapped up in wins and losses. Uh, I, I had a guy interesting for our fo faith football team. They do. It's really cool. They do interviews during halftime um, uh, for faith, faith coaches, faith teachers. And, and he interviewed me and it was just, and he asked a question. He said, you know, what do you want your legacy to be at faith? And it, I hadn't been asked that very much. And, and it, it hit me in a second. And I think the answer to it is growth, man, because I, I don't know. I, I, even when I first started coaching, I think, my answer would have been, oh, I want to be known for a certain amount of wins. Like I want to be up there in the rankings all the time. I want to have a bunch of state championships. I want to be known as a really good coach, you know, somebody that others can watch and all this. Like that. I think that's what I would have gone for. Uh, all of these physical trophies that collect dust and ultimately mean nothing. So my answer to him was, I don't care. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't care what my legacy is going to be. That's not what I'm focused on. I think if you have the right perspective and you're worried about one, the relationships that that's really what coach Drew is good at is he's really good at building relationships and he's really good with those carrying on over time. Like I played for him for one year and I still feel like he's my college coach. <laughs> like he he's built that with us. And then, and then with my players and my family, like if, if I'm focused on them being faithful to them every day, showing up the right way, and then legacy takes care of itself. So I think that's one thing, um, not been out of shape, whether we win or lose more focused on how I can be my very, very best today. The older we get, I think it's just natural, you know, un unless you're intentional about it the less that you think about things from a player's perspective. Mm. And 
having gone through something like this, did it or has it made you more aware of that perspective? You know, you think it would. Uh, when I started out coaching, I I wanted to be Bobby Knight because uh, my coach Dave Bliss was Bobby Knight's first assistant, and he was he was Coach Knight in practice and in the locker room and in games, but he was very smooth and polished in front of the camera. That was the difference. But I've seen things and heard things from him. And it was a very transactional relationship. And I go through that year with Coach Drew, but I didn't really recognize at the time what he was trying to do. But off-court habits, poor living, and really an angry spirit led me to coach that way. And so I, I, I would say my first five to six years before coming to Grapevine Faith, uh, not a very, not very proud of the coach that I was at that time. And then, uh, God put my wife in my, in my life for a reason. And my 30th, around my 30th birthday completely transformed I, who I am as a person, but really made me look back and, and, and think like, is this the coach I want to be? Is this more like Dave Bliss or is this more like Scott Drew? And so I started to choose that path of Scott Drew. Um, where I think now it's way more player led. Um, I try to look through, try to continue uh, guys like Mike neighbors, other guys like that continue to challenge me to why do I care so much about this? Is it about me or is it, a, is it for my players? And so many things as coaches, I think we do that we think it's important. They don't, and it doesn't lead to winning. And so uh, the things that we hold dear or we think of, like handshakes and layup in warm-up lines, I can't stand them personally. Like I, it just, I don't like them, but my players want to do them. But so you got to ask yourself, like, why am I not letting them do that? Is it because I feel like it reflects poorly on me as a coach? Am I, am I, am I so set in my ways that I can't see the value in that or is it okay that they just have a little bit of fun? And Coach Drew was good at that, of, of allowing us to smile and have fun in practice. And you see their culture of joy that they have now. He didn't call it that back then because he got it from Dabo Sweeney, but it was there and living at that time before they put the acronym to it. You alluded to some of this throughout, but specifically for coaches listening, what are some of the lessons or practical applications that you really hope that they walk away with from having read this book? Well, I, I think first it's be careful what that thirst for winning or success, what that drive can do to you. Because I don't, I don't think my former head coach woke up one day thinking I'm going to blame everything that's happening on my dead player. He didn't, he didn't start out that way, but when success and winning at all costs is what we're, is what we're about, then who knows, who knows what we're capable of. I think that's one thing. Um, I mean, I, I think there's a part of, there's a part of the story that it's not even about coaches. It's about all of us as people reexamining what really is important in our lives. 
Uh, there's a coach here in Dallas, Fort Worth, David Peeler. He has a sign in his, in his garage when he drives up and he pulls into his garage door, a garage, and he looks at this sign and it says, never fail at the job that only you can do. And the job that only you can do is with your family. Anybody, trust me, anybody can be the head coach of Grapevine Faith Christian School. Mm-hmm. The kids are great. They're going to do what you ask. It's not hard. Like, but no one else can do what I do here. And I think that's like a big reminder that hopefully you get through the, through the book. And then, and then also too, maybe, a an idea of, uh, second chances. Um, I had a pastor once say that, you know, there's, there's no failing tests while we're still here on earth. We get redos, we get to take them over and over again. So like I failed miserably for, I still do. Nobody's perfect. And but my failures now don't compare to my failures in my twenties. And I think that's another, that's another lesson. And then ultimately too, as a coach, redefine success with your team. Like I think coach Drew was more process based before it was a cool thing to be process based. He, 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 he talked about within our team, we were foundation blocked. We were building something for someone else. Um, we weren't going to be wrapped in and wins and losses, but were we improving? Um, and then really doing a good job of building relationships with us. Like he, he was doing things and there's the coaching staff, coach Mills, coach Tang, coach Driscoll, all those guys, uh, they were doing things with us that now are popular. Uh, they, they, we, we went to church together. We had, we had small groups. We had a small groups at my apartment, which sadly I had to quickly clean up from the night before and, and air freshen all over the place before we had our Bible study in my apartment. And, uh, and, and he made me as a leader, take my teammates out to eat individually, which I had never done before. Um, he, he set individual goals for each of us based on what he thought our, playing what our roles were going to be and it had all it had never been that that personalized for me before as a player so i i think just as a 32 year old he was ahead of his time and the staff they were ahead of their time with some of the things oh played music in practice Mm -hmm. i can't i can't i i remember like it was yesterday walking out to our first practice and jock jams being played like <laughs> what what are we doing here this is practice you know coach bliss was the first meeting with him it was i'm not your friend you have enough friends i'm your basketball coach that's what i was used to and that's what i loved and then here's this smiling hey come on out have fun at practice like okay is this a joke like <laughs> are we for real but now what practice doesn't have music in it so I think he was he was on to some stuff. Yeah, those are great. I was actually just watching a video today and I'll try to link it below, but just to the idea of cohesion, team cohesion and building team chemistry and so many of the things that you just mentioned are things that they they had had in there. It was based off of research, so not as fun for us sports guys, but it was <laughs> it was a lot of the things that you mentioned and reading another book of somebody who I've got planned to come on the podcast, but just you look at most teams in the you've skirted around it without actually saying it because it's a buzzword for us, but you know, the team culture that they were trying to create there is typical of what 
this person says you'll find in any place that has good culture. And that's usually strong relationships and standards that are, that are high and that are reinforced. And you don't have to read the book to know that, you know, coach drew is trying to do something very specific there. And it's not just win basketball games and recruit high talent. So cool to hear some of those stories for sure. One or two, before I let you go, where can people connect with you? Um, the podcast and the book and anything else that you want to, that you want to plug. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, all, I'm on social media and, uh, and so if anybody wants to, I'm looking up right now, it's Matt underscore Samen. Feel free. Uh, my email, if you have any questions about anything, um, is Samen.Matt at gmail.com. The, the book yeah, is on Amazon. It's the best place. Now there's two versions of it out there. There's one, that I, I self-published uh, almost 10 years ago now, um, which is great. Then Baylor goes and wins the national championship and an actual publisher wanted to publish the book. And so that one has, if the title's a little bit different, I think the Baylor part is, is uh, or something, yeah, the title's a little different, but if you just put in the leftovers basketball on Amazon, that's the best way. Um, and I'm just, yeah, I'm always honored when people read it and, uh, and then, yeah, Jamoni podcast. It's nothing compared to yours, uh, yeah. But, but, I, but, like you said, I mean, the talk that you and I had today is kind of what I like to have with with coaches and learn more about their cultures and what they do. Yeah, coach does a great job, and I will be sure to link that below as well. That's Coach Matt Saman. And one last time, the book is The Leftovers: Basketball, Betrayal, Baylor, and Beyond. Got my copy, autographed copy that I'm pumped about and I can't, can't wait to read that coach. Awesome stuff. I appreciate you taking the time to come on, man. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.